Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're going to be talking with Brian Matthew of TPPF uh, about housing and zoning and one of my favorite topics, which is complaining about my neighbors. Our guest today is Brian Matthew, who is a policy analyst with the Center for Local Governance at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Uh, Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, guys. No problem. So we are going to talk today about a number of local government issues, uh, but most importantly, housing. Uh, Housing, we know, is important because that's where we keep our stuff. The, The question, I guess, is, you know, why is housing a political issue at all? Isn't that something that, you know, people just buy and sell and live in houses and, you know, forget about it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the reason why it's a political discussion is because of uh, the big impact or the big role government plays in uh, restricting how we use our property uh, through things like land use regulations. Uh, we can get into this a little bit more. I, I know you guys had Christina Sandifer on earlier who talked about private property, and I think she was absolutely right uh, when she said that there used to be a presumption that you're able to use and develop your property as you see fit unless you are harming other people. Uh, but that presumption's kind of flipped, and now you have to get government permission to use your property in certain ways. Uh, you, you're only able to build uh, housing in certain areas of the city. Uh, and so all those kinds of regulations, as they accumulate, really restrict the amount of housing that you have in a given geographic area. And obviously, if you restrict supply at a time that demand is rising, that means prices go up and affordability is negatively Im- impacted. Yeah, so I, I want to get to the supply issue in a minute because I, I think that's kind of important. But, you know, just as long as we're on, on the general topic. So I uh, here in the neighborhood, uh, it's very common for um, – my neighbors really like Halloween decorations, right? They're already – half of the houses on the block already have, like, skeletons in the front yard and other things. And, uh, in fact, there's – one of my neighbors down the street that has this, I don't know if it's a skeleton or a witch that makes noises at all hours of the day and night, <laughs> you know, keeps me up. It's very annoying. Uh, also have a, a barking dog issue or whatnot. So, you know, so I, I, I broach that is just like, uh, I wonder how much of, to some extent, when you're living in proximity to people. Yeah. Uh, you know, in an urban or server, urban environment, you know, the, the, the ways that you use your property can annoy or impinge on, you know, other people's uh, enjoyment of their own home. And so, you know, how do you just as a as a general matter, you know, how do we how do we think about that? How do you kind of reconcile, you know, those sorts of issues? Uh, and is that kind of a justification for limiting property rights in some way? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with the idea that there are government regulations that are justifiable, including nuisance laws, right? 
because government has an obligation to provide the order, the public order in which we're able to exercise our liberty uh, to flourish and build a good society. But I think where this idea of presumption really matters is that when your civic society has sort of this basic understanding uh, that I'm generally able to use my property the way I want, then when your neighbor's Halloween stuff is bothering you, the solution is not first to go to the government and complain about Halloween decorations. The solution first is to go and talk to your neighbor and learn how to be good neighbors. Uh, and yeah, there's there's a point at which maybe see- seeking government redress is is justifiable. But I, I think that's what where that conversation of what the presumption is really matters. And that's how I start to think about those kinds of issues. Okay, so let's get back to the supply issue. Austin, uh, well, Texas in general uh, has a reputation for being a fairly cheap place to live, particularly for places that people want to you know, move to. Uh, I mean, I lived for a while in Terre Haute, Indiana. It was very cheap to live there. No offense to any one from Terre Haute there, but like part of the reason is there's not a lot of competition of people moving to Terre, Terre Haute, Indiana to push up the housing prices. But you do have, I think, kind of uh, you see an issue over and over again in kind of desirable urban centers, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, Brooklyn or San Francisco, uh, we see it in Austin even, where, you know, people want to move there, which is great, but then housing becomes more and more uh, unaffordable and people who used to live there kind of get pushed out for various yeah. reasons. And I think what you're saying is the solution there is, well, you just uh, build more housing, build, you know, more bigger uh, uh, apartment buildings and uh, houses and, you know, all sorts of other stuff uh, in order to accommodate the new people and keep prices low. Is that is that kind of the, the gist of it there? Yeah, that's that's definitely the gist. And, and you're right to say that Texas has a reputation historically of being of being pretty affordable. Uh, actually, cost of living in general is pretty low in Texas compared to most other states, including cost of housing, which is why we do pretty well on supplemental poverty measures and things like that. Um, and part of the reason why is that even though we do have restrictions on sort of vertical growth within the city given texas's geography we are able to really accommodate a lot of horizontal growth and i would argue that's really what you saw over the course of the last 20 to 30 years in texas uh you you may not see the center city growing as much but you would see big population booms in the metropolitan areas around the major cities in texas like the dallas fort worth area in the houston greater houston uh, metropolitan area uh, around even in around San Antonio or Austin as well. Um, and I think what is happening over the course of the last 10 year, 10 years, really, when you look at the data, is that we're seeing the limits of that kind of horizontal growth. Uh, we're seeing the the strain it puts on transportation and commute times. Uh, and so I think it's time for us to revisit the level of restrictions we put on vertical growth. Yeah, I was in uh, I was in California in San Francisco about a, two months ago, and I was there with my uh, with my family and my my two teenage boys. And uh, one of the things I was doing is we were walking around San Francisco. So I was I was, I was sort of playing a game with the boys, and I was saying, uh, point out the uh, the most modern looking buildings you can find. 
And uh, the, the reason I was doing that was I was actually wanting to make them sort of look around and see that most of the buildings were really old. And, I, and the whole point of it was explaining to them, look, there's a housing shortage in San Francisco. Prices are really high. Now you tell me why. Um, and they sort of quickly became uh, sort of they quickly sort of figured out for themselves that, well, they're not building a lot of new housing. So is that sort of, uh, I guess, a good example of of uh, the economics of, of housing? Yeah, absolutely. I think San Francisco and uh, the New York area as well are just sort of poster children for this problem. Uh, it, it's funny because I started getting into this really from reading folks on the center left. Uh, I, I know, Doug, you have a special interest in exposing m- millennials to more conservative ideas. And I, I guess in some ways I'm a typical millennial in that I started off very much on the left uh, but it was really through reading folks like uh, Ryan Avent and Matt Iglesias who talk exactly uh, what you're sort of alluding to about San Francisco's experience in particular um, that really opened my eyes to how uh, a more market-based approach in housing and then a more market-based approach in other areas as well showed how conservatism works uh, because the laws of supply and demand really are laws. They're economic laws. And uh San Francisco, I think, and California in general, really do have an affordability problem that's almost entirely due to artificial scarcity imposed by land use restrictions. It seems to me uh, pretty clear that you know supply and demand is a thing, and that does seem to be a pretty big political problem, or there's a lot of political opposition. What are some of the arguments or the, the bases that people use that are skeptical of building more housing or, out, you know, outright hostile to it. Um, you know, what, what is the argument there? There are a variety of different arguments that you hear. Um, some of them are more in, in an odd way, environmentally based. Uh, you know, in Austin, we have a lot of land use regulations that have an environmental uh, sort of impetus, uh, restrictions on things like impervious cover, for example, um, but I, I think really. Well, well hold, hold on. Hold on. Sure. Uh, could you just define impervious cover? Yeah, is that it's like a street. Uh, yeah, basically, impervious cover is any type of human-made surface that doesn't absorb rainfall, uh, and, and so those are often regulated due to flooding, but also in order to preserve or create more uh, green space, which Austin really cares about. Um, so those kinds of reasons are, uh, part of the reason why, uh, we have these regulations. I think the real reason though, is due to the fact that in America, for most middle-class people, their wealth is tied up with their housing. And so what people are trying to do is protect, uh, their wealth. Uh, they're, they're imposing these restrictions so that because they are afraid that if more people come into an area, they're going to see their personal nest eggs, the value of their personal nest egg fall. Well, and, and that brings up another topic. You, you alluded to um, uh, one of our prior podcasts with Christina Sandifer, but we also recently just spoke with uh, Ovik Roy, and he brought up issues about gentrification. So explain to us from your point of view a little bit about gentrification and how big of a policy issue is and maybe ways that we could mitigate any of the downside to gentrification? Yeah, basically what happens uh, when you have a lot of people wanting to move into an area and you have 
artificial scarcity as well, uh, an inability for more housing to be built to meet that demand, people are going to go look for the area where they can still buy something that's affordable. And often that's going to be in the lowest income areas. Uh, so, for example, in Austin, you have uh, historically the St. John's area, which was predominantly African-American over the past you know, 10 to 20 years. It's been more uh, Latino immigrant community that's been living there. And what you've seen is uh, because people want to live in Austin, a lot of developers come in and uh, buy up the land and uh, basically more higher income people move in. Eventually, the lower income people who originally lived in that area can no longer afford to live in that area due to property taxes or rising rents, what have you. There are a lot of downstream negative consequences of this for lower income people themselves. Uh, one of the, the most pernicious is that now that they can't live in the center city, which is closer to employment, they're pushed out further away, uh, which means that their transportation costs go up if they uh, still want to commute to their old job that paid well. Uh, and that makes it harder for them to build wealth over time. Again, I think the real solution to the gentrification problem is to end those kinds of distortions by allowing for more housing to be built. Cha we, we can't prevent change from happening. Uh, people are going to want to move in to places like Austin, to places like uh, Houston or Dallas or San Antonio, no matter what we do, but we can uh, sort of mitigate the negative effects of gentrification by allowing supply to really expand. Yeah. So uh, this is obviously this is not my policy area, but I I think that you hit on something that is very important. You know, when when people talk about this issue, one word that often comes up is NIMBY, right? Uh, which I believe is an acronym that stands for not in my backyard. Yeah, that's so right. The stereotypical NIMBY is someone who's like, well, you know, I don't, I'm not opposed to uh, development, but I don't want any, de any development near me, right? I don't, you know, so they're going to oppose uh, building, you know, new housing or apartments or amenities or, or whatever. And I think when you talk about people that are very pro, you know, let's build more housing, they often talk about nimbyism as if it was something that was uh, irrational or immoral or maybe both, you know. But as you noted, I think that there can there can often be a very uh, rational, self-interested reason for people to be nimbyish, right? Which is particularly if you, you know, if my wealth is tied up in my house and uh, if people are not allowed to build more houses or very much, then the price of my house is going to go up. Yeah. If I allow people to build, you know, if, if the city allows people to build a lot more houses, uh, that's good for the new people that are coming in. But I don't really see a benefit from that. Uh, I mean, may, yeah, I, I might, there might be some, some downstream benefits, you know, from you have a more dyna dynamic city, you know, uh, blah, 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 blah. But I'm not capturing most of that extra value. I don't get it. And I, I am giving up some of my own value in terms of housing wealth. Uh, and the, uh, the other thing is that, you know, I, as a current resident, am allowed to vote for the elected officials who are making these decisions, whereas uh, the people who would move into the city if it was more affordable, 
they don't get to vote, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's kind of a, there's kind of a big asymmetry there, even if, uh, overall the community would benefit, uh, for having more housing, more people. And so I, I wonder, it seems like that is, that is maybe kind of a, a it's kind of a key obstacle that needs to be addressed somehow. I, um, I don't know, you know, I've, I've thought about, is there, you know, is there some sort of like, maybe you could do something where when new people move into a city, the long-term residents get a, you know, a tax break or, you know, have some sort of weird property tax rate system where the longer you've owned the home, the lower the rate you pay or something. I don't know. That sounds uh, like it sounds like when you join a join a private club, and if you encourage more people to come, you get a discount. So maybe it works the same way. You get like a tax rebate yeah, if you, you encourage yeah. more people to come to town. There you go. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's something like that, so that the current residents have a, a tangible benefit that they get from supporting more development and and new residents to come in. I don't know. I, I'm just as I say, it's just like a brainstorm. I don't expect you to, to endorse uh, the Neely plan right here, but <laughs> well, I, mean, I, I do think creative solutions like that are worth taking a look at. I mean, David uh, Schleicher. I can I can never pronounce names, so I apologize if I butchered his name. But David Schleicher, uh, I believe, associated with Cato, a while back, wrote this really good paper on uh, zoning budgets, which was sort of his proposed policy tool to deal with uh, local housing supply issues. Basically, uh, decisions to engage in upzoning or uh, increasing the areas in which new housing can be built are always politically contentious exactly for the reasons that you said. Usually neighborhood groups will make it very clear to their local council person that they don't want to see upzoning in their neighborhood. And so the council person will react to his current constituents and not really think about the interests of potential future constituents, right? Uh, right. So Schleicher's sort of proposed innovation, which I think is a pretty good idea, is that elected officials should sort of set a target over a you know five-year period or 10-year period for how much they want to see housing supply increase. Any land use regulation decision has to keep the zoning budget that they have set previously in mind. If any area is downzoned, then some other corresponding area has to be upzoned. So it just sort of changes the political dynamics. Uh, I, I do think things like that are uh, worth looking into. I think another idea he uh, proposed was tax increment local transfers, which are kind of these <laughs> buy-offs, uh, if you will, that uh, the Neely plan uh, would kind of proffer. Right, yeah. I used to, so, and I I don't know that I would, I've never advocated this formally, but, you know, as kind of like a sitting around the bar type of thing, I, I used to have uh, the idea for immigration that, you know, if you, if you go to a popular nightclub or something that a lot of people want to get in, you know, they, they, there might be a cover charge, right? Uh, you know, to, so people have to pay because they really want to get into this club. And so if Club America, if, you know, immigrants or other people uh, want to come in, uh, we should just, you know, have a cover charge, uh, charge people in order to come into the country and then uh, use that to, you know, I don't know, pay off the national debt or... Yeah. Or, you know, I, well, tax or whatever. Well, really, that's how tax in increment local transfers would work. Basically, whenever a city permits a new development, 
the new construction obviously increases the uh, city's tax base by a certain amount called the tax increment. And then under Schleicher's proposal, that amount, that increment would be transferred to NIMBY homeowners to buy their support for new housing. So it's a very similar idea. So so tell us a little bit about your uh, your impressions about the job that Ben Carson's doing at HUD. You know, I haven't paid close attention to his job generally, but I have uh, noted with this interest his, uh, I guess, suggestion. I, I don't even know if it's really a proposal at this point, but suggestion that uh, cities that receive federal grants may uh, stop receiving those grants if uh if they continue to rely on exclusionary zoning, I, I think that's a really interesting proposal. Uh, I, I think, in, in my view, if you read some of the early court cases surrounding zoning, you see that they uh, definitely have a racial segregationist uh, component behind them. Um, I, I think Car- uh, Secretary Carson is coming to this idea after uh, backing away from an Obama-era regulation to uh, enforce a provision of the Fair Housing Act uh, that's trying to get cities to uh, end racial segregation as it continues to exist and practice in some cities. I think instead he's going uh, with a better approach, which is to sort of get cities to re-examine their exclusionary zoning practices. But Again, I'd have to see the actual proposal to really see uh, what it looks like. I think it's a definitely an interesting idea, though. So let me pivot a bit, although I think it's a related concept. Uh, you're talking about some of these regulations. And so this, I'm, I come from sort of a localist mindset where I like to see as many, you know, I like to see decisions made at the most localized level possible. If it can be, if a decision can be made by the family, it should be decided there. If it can be decided privately in a, within the community, it should be decided there. If it needs to go, be decided at a governmental level, I want it to be decided at the most local level of government possible. But so many of these decisions you know, I think there's becoming a, uh, a battle between whether it's a local issue or a state issue. Uh, you know, fracking is one issue that's come up where uh, the, I believe the, the state legislature is, is banning fracking bans. And I think it's coming up in, in other areas, like for instance with uh, Austin and their, uh, uh, the sick pay ordinance where uh, the uh, the state is now considering banning those type of rules, and, and another one obviously is the plastic bag ban. So, how do you you know? And you can comment directly on any of those that you choose, but how do you sort of make a you know from a I guess from your perspective, how do you determine where the proper level of government is to to make these type of regulations? Yeah, I mean it's a good question. It's one that we get a lot, and I have a lot of sympathy uh, for your position. I think one thing that uh, we try to keep in mind in our work here uh, when we look at local government uh, regulations and what we consider overreach is that all levels of government from a philosophical standpoint uh, are instituted to secure the people's liberty. Uh, And so it's not about saying that local government is supreme or state's government is supreme or federal government is supreme. It's about understanding that the function of government at any level is to secure liberty. And part of the reason why we have set up competing layers of government is so that we can uh, make sure that we're able to fight for liberty at whatever level we we need to uh, and get you know, the federal government to check state governments when they abuse liberty and get state governments to check 
the federal government, when the federal government overreaches its bounds, uh, the state government created cities in order to, as its political subdivisions, in order to advance its uh, policy priorities. And so in that sense, the state has a legitimate supervisory and monitoring function. And so whenever we think about where we want the state to intervene on um, sort of local regulations, there, there are certain things I look at. One is spillover effects. Uh, when is a city, uh, when is a city's regulations having an effect that is outside its actual zone? Um, uh, I would argue that ride sharing was a, a, a good example of this, where you had uh, sort of patchwork quilts of regulations that were inconsistent across the state. And I think it was it was good that the state came in and sort of set a standard for ride sharing that operated throughout the state. Uh, uh, another is when it, and, and th these two are not as respected now as I think they should be, and I think originally were under the Constitution, but regulations that impact economic liberty and also private property. And, and pertinent to this conversation, I, I really do think uh, that presumption flipping we talked about re with regards to our ability to use and enjoy our private property is really, really important. And that's why I think the state does have a legitimate role in coming back and uh, maybe getting local governments to re-examine their, uh, their current practices when it comes to local land use restrictions. Uh, I, I think a, a good way to, to do that would be something like the Goldwater Institute's Private Property Fairness uh, Ownership Act, uh, Property Ownership Fairness Act, excuse me, uh, where basically uh, whenever the government makes a land use regulation that diminishes the fair market value of a person's private property, that person is uh, due adequate and just compensation uh, unless the local government, the city, can show that they really are more likely than not advancing a, a legitimate public health and safety interest. So I, I also want to raise a point here, which is that, you know, so take uh, an issue uh, like the minimum wage, right? A city might want to pass a minimum wage ordinance and, you know, Doug, you might say, well, I'm not that big on the minimum wage, but I think, you know, uh, if a city wants to do that, you know, that's fine. It's not, you know, much better than the state or federal government doing it or whatever. But I think from my perspective, what that leaves out is that we already have a federal minimum wage and, and a lot of states also already have a state minimum wage. So it's it would be one thing if if we decided, OK, cities are the proper you know, level of government to deal with this and therefore higher levels of government are prohibited from doing anything about it. Right. But that's not that's not the way our system operates in practice. Uh, what you what you have is that people who want a minimum wage or whatever the regulation is, they get three bites at the apple. Right. They can do it at the city level. and If that doesn't work, they can go to the state level. and If that doesn't work, they can go to the, the federal level and they only have to win once, whereas we have to win three times, uh, unless we're willing to go up a level and say, nah, we think that the city's infringing on liberty and so we're gonna we're gonna preempt that. Uh, so I think that's just a, a consideration that needs to be factored in when we're thinking about, you know, local control or whatever. Uh, you know, we're we're not just 
designing a society from scratch, we have to accept that higher levels of government do have the authority and exercise it often in these areas. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's totally appropriate for conservatives who, for example, believe that the minimum wage is a bad thing to go up to the state government and say, well, we may not be able to get rid of the federal minimum wage, but we can preempt local governments from instituting a uh, local minimum wage because we think that ultimately it's going to uh, hurt our economic growth and uh, be bad for the individual liberties of citizens who live in those cities where those policies uh, uh, would apply to them. So you had mentioned there in the discussion plastic bags. This is this is something that Austin, uh, for a while, prohibited the sale of plastic bags in the city. It was very aggravating to me personally. And then um, there was a court decision that ended up getting struck down in another city. And Austin said that they were because of that, they weren't going to do their ordinance anymore. Uh, although the plastic bags haven't entirely come back yet, uh, I'm I'm still I'm anxiously waiting for that. I did want to place you know something, Brian, that you had said in another interview uh, relevant to this topic that I wanted to ask you about. So let me let me see if I can just play this here. Based off of Civil War, Tony Stark would definitely side with banning plastic bags. Call me old-fashioned. Whereas Captain America would definitely be on the side of the consumer. And if I'm the only one, then so be it. Okay, according to you, Tony Stark, Iron Man, would be in favor of banning plastic bags. Uh, how dare you, is my question. Uh, okay, so basically you have to pay attention to the arcs, right? <laughs> Tony Stark starts off uh, very... I guess, more uh, individualistic, uh, a little bit less collectivist. Captain America starts off more collectivist, uh, maybe befitting his World War II sort of origins, uh, but ends up after finding out that Hydra has infiltrated uh, S.H.I.E.L.D., much more skeptical of government. Uh, and so that's kind of what animated my <laughs> my comments in that regard, but I know you take issue with with my interpretation. Uh, yes, I mean it, it, Tony Stark uh, famously in Iron Man Two says, "I've privatized world peace. You can't have my uh, super suit. You know, it's my private property or whatever." So, you know, I think you're doing. I, I agree with you about Captain America. He's you know he's for liberty, uh, but I I think you're kind of you're uh, libeling a great entrepreneur and uh you know great american in in saying what you're saying about about iron man there you know i just think that after his experience with uh the alien invasion of new york as well as the ultron debacle he is much much more willing to have government intervention to produce the outcomes that he thinks are good and i think plastic bag bands might well fit under that category we, don't, we certainly don't want the aliens getting a hold of our plastic bags. I mean, that, that could be... That would be the worst. Yeah, that would be disastrous. Our guest today has been Brian Matthew. Uh, Brian, thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys.